Hello and welcome to Making Creativity Pay. My name's Dan Barnett and on this podcast I speak to those in the creative industries about promotion, marketing and getting noticed. This episode is with comedy producer Gina Lyons. This was a great chat encompassing the varied aspects of Gina's career to date. From getting into the industry via a reality TV show, working with a huge range of comedians on both live shows and scripted series, and also her thoughts for anyone looking to get into the world of scripted comedy. Our chat is bookended talking about Gina's appearance on the Drunk Women Solving Crime podcast, where she talks about experiences she's had which ended up all over the internet and might one day become a feature film. Listening to Drunk Women Solving Crime, without trying to psychoanalyse you from a five minutes on a podcast, you seem very much a kind of a yes and kind of person. Yeah. Oh, I am. You know? Yes and. Yeah. <laughs> I guess in kind of your line of work, there's you never know where it's going to go and kind of the opportunities that might come from all sorts of things. Yeah, I think it's my I think it's my personality to be honest. I'm quite an optimistic person, but I I'm sort of not scared of failure. I fail all the time, uh, daily, and so I'm sort of not afraid to put my hand up for stuff and yeah, so very much yes and in all walks of life. A bit of an unusual into the industry. When I was I think I was 20, I applied I saw in a magazine, do you think you could be a TV producer? And I was like, yeah. And so I applied to this, what I thought was some sort of Channel 4 scheme. And I got to the interview, which was actually an audition. And there was 2,000 people in the queue at the American Church in Tottenham Court Road. And there was 2,000 people in the queue. And it turned out it was for a TV show called Get Me the Producer. And it was very much the team and a lot of the, the same series producers from The Apprentice. So it was 12 wannabe TV producers and then the two heads, and then Greg Dyke, who was just left his post as director general at the BBC, and he was the sort of Alan Sugar. Unsurprisingly, it was a one-hit, <laughs> one-series show, because people don't want to know how TV's made. It's really boring. But yeah, it was that sort of led to... I, I won that series, and I then joined So Television, Graham Norton So Television, for a year contract. So that I'm literally a competition winner. In, in this industry and I feel it every day that hasn't changed <laughs> so that's how I started and I was at, I ended up staying with, at So TV for five years with Graham Stewart and Graham Norton loved it still love Graham Graham Stewart the boss and then I sort of needed to go into freelance I always knew it was comedy that I wanted to do I knew I was not serious enough to take on anything else but I had to sort of learn the industry so after five years of being in-house I sort of needed to to sort of go and freelance and Graham Stewart said to me one day if you want to make comedy live eat and breathe it so I pitched a, a stand-up night that we did that they still do I think so called so comedy and I did that with a couple of other producers and I started absorbing myself in the live comedy circuit where I worked with a host of people Russell Kane and Adam Rowe I did Adam Rowe's first um one of his not, not his first but one of his Edinburgh shows and then uh, by this point, I was sort of jobbing about in comedy entertainment from associate producer or assistant producer, producer, series producer. And I wanted to move into scripted. And in my part time, I would be making short films. And I even made a feature film when I was about 20 with a bunch of mates. And I was constantly making stuff, but couldn't get into scripted. And then my first, I made a couple of non-TX pilots, which means non-transmittable on the channel with a, with a, a company one with Richard Gadd, and then I eventually got my first pilot, which was In My Skin, written by Kaylee Llewellyn, and that was on BBC Three, and that 
I was heavily pregnant when I made that. I think I was eight months. So it's been a, a rocky road to get into scripted and it's quite tricky to move from unscripted. But in my eyes, the best people do it. Within that, did, did you always kind of feel you wanted to get into the production side rather than the performing side? Yeah, I mean, I, funny enough, I actually went to drama school for a year and I quit. It wasn't a great experience. It wasn't a great drama school. So I think when I was young, from a, an estate in Northampton, I didn't know what a producer was. I didn't know what the other roles were. You kind of knew what a director was and you knew what a performer was. So I, I always knew I wanted to sort of tell stories, but I just didn't know how. And it wasn't until I sort of got into the industry that I realised there was lots of different ways and job roles and stuff. But producing itself is a bit of a weird one because there's different types of producers. There's ones that get in, get the job done, get home, and there's storytellers and creative ones. And it it takes many different hats, I think, the sort of all-encompassing role of a producer. You can be a producer on a film just by putting money into it. So it's very different. And I would class myself as somebody that really enjoys the ground up. So from the idea to the script to the shoot, to the edit. In fact, sometimes the shoot can be the most boring bit for a producer if everything's going well. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the time in your background, yeah, you talk about script editing and those kind of things. Yeah. So you, you feel you're very much kind of a collaborator with the writer and the rest of the team in going from an idea to the finished article. Yeah, very much so. I sort of I love the sort of working up on the germ of an idea. I love writers. They're my favourite people in the world. I love how their brains work. Some of my favourite people in my top 20 people are writers. So I very much like to be there at the beginning. And even if it's a show and the show's being commissioned, I really like to get in as early as I can to sort of have an impact in those scripts. Um, I think I've got really good taste, which helps. Uh, I think uh, that's one of the things. I think it was Robert De Niro wrote in these. He said the talent is in the choices. And I think that goes for yeah, building a slate of projects that you've been part of that have have the taste that you have. And if you're confident in that, hopefully they hit with the audience. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a strange job role. And it, it differs between comedy entertainment and scripted comedy and as you mentioned before live it's a very different job across the three platforms in terms of your background you've had kind of not nine to five because i'm sure it's very much not but a kind of a rate regular positions and freelance and then pitching how do the if you want a bit more autonomy and a bit more interesting is that where freelance is so majority of our TV industry is, is kept alive by freelancers and we get a bit of a shoddy deal in the fact that none of us have pensions or security or anything like that and it get, becomes even harder when you become a mum. And I say mum because I'm a part of Telemums, the committee, and I think nowadays men and women still have it differently with, with childbearing and rearing, but it is the people that seem to do well do have that sort of in-house role and there is a lot more security. However... If you are about the show and you want to work on great shows, they're not always made by the same company. So freelancing gives you a bit more of a creative variety. Uh, not to say I would I would love sort of a head of comedy job somewhere where I could get my knees under a desk and have the stability that I, that I haven't had for years. But I very much to sort of cement myself in scripted had to be freelance for that reason. So yeah, it's all it's all very different. But it, 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 most people would would like a steady job it just doesn't really exist in in telly not often anyway and in terms of content and how it's distributed because i mean you mentioned in my skin i I caught that it was just on it was bbc3 on bbc1 late night but 
obviously, if I hadn't just had the telly on on BBC One, I never have. I probably wouldn't have gone to find it. So you've got terrestrial and network TV. You've got the kind of the streaming, and then you've got web stuff. Is it quite different how those get made, how they get promoted? Yeah, and- totally different. I think so. I'm, I sort of produced a pilot called Dream Wells Black, and that was a very successful web series. And that was funny. And he's and the the team that created the show. They were all at university or film school together and they had this idea and they started making it and they didn't have a lead actor. So Ajani stepped in to be the lead actor of his own story and they they got the recognition and they got the eyeballs to TV execs who then the BBC Three commissioned it. So the web stuff, unless it's sort of advertorial, so unless you're working for a brand, which I've done, so I've done like Compare the Market or Vodafone where they say, we want it to look and feel like a series, but there is a brand paying for it that's a different thing in the sense that you have someone to answer for if you're uploading your own content you're a content creator so you can do and say whatever you are it's an ungoverned platform terrestrial broadcasting and streamers tend to be similar in the sense that there'll be a commissioner that you pitch to and they will sort of guide you through what their audiences and how things should be delivered and every channel has their own remit of credits at the top credits at the end or this is we want to do a next up we want to do a this they all have their own audience and they know what works and how that show is played so streamers don't have scheduling because they don't schedule shows they have they've started to release them differently so it's all very different but I'm very much a believer that that content is content however it's eaten up by the viewer I'm a, a big advocate for people's own content online. I've cast two people that I found on TikTok in shows because they were brilliant. And I think good stories are good stories. And I think funny's funny, wherever it is. But there is a, a different delivery for these for these platforms and shows. Yeah. And do you think over the, the last couple of years, it's got better, it's kind of got flatter in terms of the, the opportunity? So there isn't several stages you have to go through. If you've got something, you can kind of show it to the world quite easily now. I don't think any of it's easy. I don't think no. producing your own stuff online is, is easy by any stretch. And if you wanted to do something scripted, you need a team of people that are going to work for nothing. And I think anyone that delivers show online, shows online are amazing because they've, they've put people together and put productions together and delivered something. And I think they're amazing. We've got more choice than ever before with commissioners and channels and places of outlet. I don't think it's any easier. I've got a show in development that's just been liked, the pilot, by a major streamer. And it's, I've had that idea for four and a half years. I've had the script for three and a half years. This is not quick. It's slow and it's it's painful and it's difficult and it feels like there's gatekeepers at every turn. And one of the things that Tracy Forsyth, who, who's sort of a, a coach and she, she worked in TV, she always talks about having a portfolio career. And I would say in my darkest years, that's what kept me afloat. Um, and that would be whipping up a CV for advertising or putting put myself in the digital space I went to work at Beano for a year, I think, when when they set up and they were making digital stuff and I just made all their comedy content for their website. You, you sort of have to pivot quite a lot. And I do advise to people to always think of other ways you can use the same skills. And if someone had an idea, maybe on the scripted side, how do they go about How much can you give away without kind of giving too much of the game away versus having enough well, to kind I of think- tickle the interest? I think people worry a bit too much about 
if I give this away, someone's going to copy it. I don't think that decent creatives want to copy anything. I also know that we're all reading the same stuff every day and listening to the same top 10 on the radio and we're all on the same platforms, all reading the same links to news. So a lot of the time when people say, I had this idea and now it's an ITV drama, I don't buy it at all. I think they didn't. You may have, but someone else did as well at the same time. And knowing how hard development is. The other thing that I feel really sorry for with writers is every company says unsolicited emails. We don't accept unsolicited emails. And I think that's really hard for an unsigned writer. And I'm working with three unsigned writers at the moment. Without me, they wouldn't be able to get that read by a broadcaster or an independent company. And I think that's really, that's a real shame. There is, for comedy, there is... Lots of like comedy.co.uk. I did a thing with them last year and we had 870 submissions, I think, of scripts. And I wanted to read every one as much as I could before I knew it wasn't right or wasn't good enough to take further. So there is little outlets popping up where you can reach out to people, but it's incredibly hard because if somebody tweets me and asks for help, I do always try to respond and to read people's work. And I found some of my favourite writers by them just emailing me and saying, I've, I've done this thing, can you have a read? But I think what I'm trying to do at the moment is develop stuff internally, like on my own with writers and then matching them up with the relevant broadcaster or production company who maybe has that link. And I don't know if that's a practice that's widely used because no one's getting paid yet. No, nobody is getting paid yet until we've got a bite. Now I've got eight, eight or nine shows on my little slate, if you like, and four of them are in options at the moment. So I've got some money out of somebody for the writer, but currently I'm not being paid by bar one. I think we've had some development money, but so it's, it is a lot to, nobody's asking me to do it but it's a lot to ask of a producer to develop without being at a company because it's a lot of work and I just came off a call about one of them before I joined you which is why I was sort of running a bit late it's a lot of work and there's no payday until somebody bites and says let's make this show and that's why it doesn't happen that much but I am very passionate about working with new and diverse writers I've got a lot of female writers on my books sort of in in, on the slate so yeah it's not easy but there are people out there that want to find amazing new stories and will answer stuff when you're kind of pitching these ideas from from writers does that tend to be more the traditional broadcasters or is it increasingly the streamers well i think a lot of writers don't think where their story should play out so one of the first things i ask people is where do you see this and one of the worst answers is when they go anywhere BBC One, Sky, Channel 4, Amazon, and you think, well, that's that's not right because they're making very different content. Bar Netflix, they, they these shows, these broadcasters, even with the streamers, have an identity and an audience that they want to reach and how they want to reach them. So one of the first things I ask writers to do is really think about where they where they feel that the show best fits and really think about that and not just, oh, it stars four women, so it, Apple, because they did Bad Sisters. It's got to think about how you're telling the story and what the story is. I, yeah, no, I, I love BBC and Channel 4 and love making, I would love to make more shows for, I, I think we've got some of our be- our broadcasters are unbelievable in this country. However, there is no denying that there is more money on the table with streamers at the moment. So it's all relevant, I think. It's all, it depends on what the story requires, what budget it requires, what sort of calibre of actor it, re- it requires or would best best be suited to. I don't treat them any different. The, the pitch is different, 
And also, again, it depends who you're working with because some production companies will have amazing relationships with broadcasters to the point that they're just friends and they, it could be a, a couple of lines, got this idea from this person. And what I found, what is predominantly written about with Netflix is that you go with a, a treatment, an outline and a, and a script. So the only reason why I've got scripts in my sleigh is because they're unsigned writers and I said, no one's going to pay you to write the script. Let's do it and then try and sell it. But if you're an experienced writer, you wouldn't write a script and pitch the script. You'd write the you'd write up an idea and, and hopefully someone buys into that and gives you a script option. But I feel maybe that's not happening as less as I thought, but it is a really tough playing field. So if a writer has a specific idea and that people just can't seem to get it, my advice is let's write it. And in terms of kind of what you pitch or what you would say, do you say, I see this as being 12 part, 30 minutes? And do you almost have to have the story arc as well and say, these are the main points at which, necessarily cliffhangers, but the kind of the main turns and the development of the process? Yeah, I mean, I come on board at different stages. One of the scripts on, on my slate that's been optioned by a company came to me as a fully-fledged script because it was part of the British Comedy Guide competition that they did. And I loved the script and I had a cast idea and that cast idea sort of slightly amended the script. So he went round and I don't know where that's going yet, but it was a script and I felt like it was good enough to sell. So I got that optioned into a company. But the next thing that anyone's asking you is what happens in the series. So the part of the development with script is who are the characters and making them as well-rounded and robust as you can, that you can put them in any scenario that you what's going to happen, how they'll react. And then the pilot, if you can, have that written up. And then a series arc. And I think when you start chatting to broadcasters, that's their their first few questions of who are these people and where are they going. Uh, so it, the more a writer knows that world or is willing to develop that world, there's something that's been sent to me as a top line and the writer has written a pilot episode and the pilot episode isn't right. It's not good enough yet, but I very much feel that she's a fantastic writer and it's a great idea so I said to, as of yesterday let's work on this and let's really work up what that what that episode is and where it's going and, and whose story we want to be focusing on and when and stuff so I do really enjoy that creative process with a writer but some things some things come and they're clear as ice the writer knows exactly where it's going and when it's going it, everything's different so is the concept of an elevator pitch is that outdated or does that still kind of exist I mean, I've never used that terminology, but I have just applied a 20-page pitch, a series art character breakdown to a, a streamer. So, and that's been thought up for a long time. So, yeah, so we, we still very much do that. I mean, famously, some shows are commissioned a lot easier with less upfront. You know, there's been... And then other things, like you've heard Shit's Creek went around the houses for so long and It's a Sin was on the table for 10 years and Daisy May Cooper's original show, which the name has left me, that had a, a different pilot before and In Between has had one pilot and then they did some recasting and then it had another one. So hopefully you find either a company or ideally a broadcaster that really is into it and wants to develop it with you and have a couple of stabs at getting it right but if you don't have that as a writer then there are people like me who who want to do the work with you and so on to live shows i know you've directed kate show losing myself in that i mean what does a in the nicest way what does a what does a director especially i i kind of find, i could kind of understand 
if it was a six-person troop, no, no. the yeah. director kind of herds the cats. But the when it's, it's a person with a microphone, it, the, yeah. the word director is stupid because it, how it's worked with a couple of three comedians, they, they would come to me and they, they'd be solid circuit comedians. They've got loads of material. And what they didn't have is an Edinburgh hour which is a, a little bit formulaic in the sense that what well, has been of late, where you're putting one story together and it's usually a journey from A to B. And we, we joke that there's a 40-minute mark where everyone's going to cry, but that's not always the case. But So for a comedian called Stephen Bailey and Adam Rowe and Kate Barron, they all had similarities in the sense they're really strong stand-up circuit comedians. And they had 15 minutes of this and 20 minutes of that. And they had a bit about the dad, a bit about this, but they had no through line. So it would just be working through what is that hour with them and and what's the story. And Kate, I agreed to, she sort of reached out to me on Twitter a few years ago. And then the pandemic hit after I'd agreed to, what I was going to do is take up like seven working class comedians up to the fringe and direct them for next to nothing and help help their profile. And Kate had one of those shows in that year. And then the pandemic hit and I won't give it away, but she did something drastic in order to change her appearance. And I sort of said, well, this is the story. This is what you've got to talk about. And she found it very close to her and it was very difficult. And it was her most emotional and honest hour that she's ever done. But in that, so it's kind of like a collaborator. Sometimes it's a bit of a co-writer or an editor. It's not really sort of one one job. It's like, that's really funny. What about if you said that after that? Or what about if you did this? And then there's obviously what we do on stage, but most of the time it's somebody in a microphone, so there's not much to direct. But with Kate and with Adam, it was it was a bit like, you've got all this amazing material, what's, what's the thread that's holding it all together and, and what's the best way to divulge that information to the audience? How do you find comedians are with that feedback? Because I'd imagine being a stand-up generally is a, a solo thing. You're writing about mm-hmm. you, it's very personal, and then someone goes, have you thought about leaving this bit out? Have you thought about tweaking that? Generally, they people good with feedback? Well, I think if you went up to a comedian after a gig and said your feedback, it would land like a pile of shit on the face. But if they, they, I, I didn't reach out to anyone. I sort of said, I want to take some shows up to Edinburgh. Or with Adam, I was at a, he's with an agency, an agent called Christian Knowles called Blue Book. And I was at a Blue Book showcase and his agent was telling me to, oh, look at this guy that I've got. And I was like, no, he's not the star. (laughs) That little fat scouser over there is the star. (laughs) And he told Adam afterwards and Adam messaged me saying, I heard you liked my stuff. I'd like to work with you. So that's how that worked. And Stephen was a good friend at the time. And Kate Barron reached out to me on Twitter. So, yeah, no, they've come to me for my opinions, I think. So they're pretty open about it. Um, and also, it's I wouldn't say this is right and this is wrong. It's their yeah. story. I sort of say, oh, this is landing like that, or this is how I feel about that, or does that make you think this? Just it's questioning stuff. It's very collaborative, and it's very uh, just working together at how we're gonna sort of sometimes even manipulate an audience. We want them to feel this way at this po- this moment, and this isn't landing, or you're not coming across quite likable here, or you're too likable here, or whatever it is. It's it's every it, I I sort of joke around that it's all done on WhatsApp because it is so personal. Kate would go on stage and just hit record on her phone, and then walking home that night, she'd send me the recording and I'd listen to it, and then send her notes when I was on my way to work the next day. So it's yeah, each one's different, but the way I like to work is just with really funny 
young people who are good storytellers and um, and helping that story land how they want it to. Yeah. Some of the previous episodes, we've had a few other comedians on right. talking about their fringe experiences and especially around the kind of the financial side and the promotional side. What are your thoughts on yeah. kind of where the fringe is now? It, it seems to be kind of eating itself almost. Yeah, it's bullshit, isn't it, really? <laughs> it's not fair because people go up. It, I mean, it's, it favours the wealthy and it, it's an arts festival, but it, the whole industry does. It's very difficult for people to to develop a show, to get enough stage time, to take it up, to pay for a month off work if you work, and then a month's extortionate rent where you could be in the bloody Maldives for a month. It's it's really sad, understandable how it's how it's got there. You know, if I had a flat in Edinburgh, I'd rent it out for ten grand a month in August. I don't blame anyone for doing that. But it is, it's really tough for people. But I, the other side of me, the sort of working class hustle side of me says, well, if you want to do something like as amazing as this for a job, it's going to be tough because some days it's not like working at all. I absolutely love what I do. So I think it's a bit of both really. It's it's really tough. And I, I feel quite strongly that there's a lot of amazing artists in every field from a working class background that won't get the same shots. Even just starting in telly, how do you how do you move to London? If you're from Wigan, uh, how do you move to London not knowing anyone, not knowing how to get a runner's job and then survive on a runner's wage in London? It's completely a different starting point. I think the difficulty now is probably never been easy, but it's probably even harder now, is that ability to fail. And I, I think that's the thing, is that that freedom to fail is kind of not there in very many cases. Yeah, you, you do have to really kind of hustle and kind of work hard to kind of even just kind of yeah keep keep the wheels turning absolutely and that's scary like I from the age of 14 I mean I've been working since I was about 12 so I've never had a sort of parent that would pay even a month's rent ever even if I was ill like it just wasn't an option to, to us I really do understand when people have those those pressures on them I don't know the answer. I pitched an idea years ago to somebody at the BBC, which was basically to get more diversity. Back then, this is like 20 years ago, so I pitched an idea where we did like a sofa surfing thing where people that work at the BBC and people young people that got this, the, the smaller jobs like runners or junior researchers could come in from out of London and sofa surf on more experienced people and we would compensate the wages. So we would pay an associate producer to put up a runner for yep. six weeks and they would get £100 a week. So they would boost their income. I just thought it was, I just thought that and it, ne- it never happened and nothing ever like that has ever happened. There's a few schemes knocking about, but it is incredibly hard. I do think, I think it, it, it really does, it favours the, the wealthy and it always has done. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. with things going regional a lot more, that will change and we'll get some interesting people join. And I think university is, it become far more accessible for people and and then doing university has allowed them to maybe get a step into telly or whatever but yeah I, I do feel for people it's not it's not easy to have that stress of how you're paying extortionate city rents when you're on a rolling contract that might last two weeks or four obviously the, the overall answer is it depends but if if you were if someone was asking for advice how do I get into the industry Obviously, being good helps. That's, that's a big one. But in terms of... How do you measure good at the start? Yeah. And, and in terms of networking and hard work, it's it's going to be a combination of all three. But where do you kind of see, where do you feel, feel people's focus should be? I think people, people from underprivileged backgrounds 
the reality is they need to work twice as hard to get that same opportunity. They won't know anyone that works in the industry. They won't know, they won't have any in. They won't have any mate's house that they can stay on if they did an unpaid work experience position. I think they have to be a bit more diligent in their time and their research and a little bit more personable whilst not being annoying and actually going well this company makes this show and I really like what they've done and I I, I like this and, and sort of knowing who you're pitching to instead of just blanket spamming everyone I mean I still I haven't done this for a couple of years but I would I would send out 40 50 emails to get one meeting and I think unfortunately if you come from a an underprivileged background that you're going to have to do the same thing you have yeah. to study a bit harder, research who you're talking to, and and be a bit cheeky and ask for stuff. Fantastic. Yeah, it's not. It's not. I don't. I wish I had a an easier way, really. Yeah, but like you said, if if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. How do you see? Like you said, you, you mentioned working with some people off the back of TikTok, so TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, all all those kind of areas. Do you do you kind of see that? Like you said, that there is now. There's ten times as much content, but getting something out is a lot easier than it than it's ever been. Yeah, I think if you're a funny person, you could literally just film yourself being funny on your phone and launch it onto three or four different platforms, and one of them may take off. The comed- the the actor Johnny Weldon really sort of used Twitter and made these little funny sketches in his phone and it blew up and that's how I found him and we're mates now and I've worked with him twice so it is it is more accessible to anyone I even like repped a couple of TikTokers last year they were doing like football comedy and they were absolutely making a killing they'd get like 30 grand from JD Sports to do a set of five videos or whatever so there's there is more opportunities but again it's going to take a lot of discipline and being on social media has, has its own difficulties in delivering the content that suits that channel and is cut for that channel and how much you deliver. You can't do one video and it blows up and that's it, your life's made. It's You have to run a channel and you have to be really proactive. The show I've just done, one of the lead actors has a very successful YouTube channel and he runs it like a business. I think he hires yeah. like eight people. So I don't think it's easier, but it is. there isn't a gatekeeper there. There isn't somebody you audition for. If you've got the ideas and you're willing to put in the work, anyone can open a TikTok or YouTube account. But I don't think it's easier to get eyeballs on it. There's no advertising. There's no marketing. You just have to hope it resonates with people and they share it. So not easier, but yes, more accessible. So on the Drunk Moves of Climb, were you talking about the was it Hangover Hotel? You were thinking of pitching your story as Hotel Hangover, yeah. Hotel Hangover, that makes sense. Is is that getting anywhere? Well, funnily enough, I was chatting recently to a friend of mine who we sort of developed a script together. He's a well-known comedian. I was like, we should work on this. But I'm working on a feature film, a comedy feature film, that we've got a brilliant cast attached, a couple of execs. And in the last meeting, the exec said, oh, I Googled you. I know, because if you Google drunk couple Sri Lanka, it'll be me all over it. And that's a story and that's a really good film. So I think now, if this film goes well, this is what we'll line up for our next film. Because I do think the best way of telling this story would be a 90-minute sort of comedy, rom com type thing. So I have a notes on my phone and I've been writing down... I mean, if you thought that Drunk Women Solving Crime was mad, you should hear the rest of what happened on that trip. Absolutely <laughs> mental. There was a bit where we nearly, we all nearly died because there was a crazy current in Maldives. Yeah, a lot. So I've been sort of brainstorming factually what happened and how that would look in a 90-minute 
feature film. So hopefully one day we can um, release that to the world. It's very unlikely someone's going to copy your story and say, oh, that happened to me too. We Luckily you can't because it's yeah. such a high profile story that you'd have to pay me to do it. Yeah, That's the good thing. So we sold the rights for the first year to an American producer, but he changed it to a bar American couple buying a Barbadian hotel. Uh, but because that didn't sell, I got the rights back. So now I'm sitting on them and I don't want to sell them. We, we, we'll, we'll just make it work at some point. Cool. Well, good luck with that. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Gina for some great answers. There's more details about Gina and her work in the show notes. If you enjoyed this, check out some of the other episodes which include discussions with a variety of comedians about their experiences around getting noticed and promoting shows. Thanks for listening.